and then uh, the sacrifice was happened. The sacrifice? Were these animal sacrifices? Satan is real, working in spirit. You can see him and dare him in this world every day. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex. We can tempt you and lead you astray. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Para Power Mapping. Over the course of this initial series, we will be examining the parapolitical history of the United States as reflected and refracted by Massachusetts local history, with a special focus on the machinations of the Boston Brahmin class and New England power elite's relationship to the occult and secret societies. We will explore a vast array of topics, including the Salem Witchcraft Trials, the saga of Thomas Morton, a heretical lawyer that upset the prevailing order in 17th century Massachusetts Bay by hosting bomb ragers and pagan rituals, and especially by trading arms with local indigenous tribes. We'll look at King Philip's War, the consolidation of wealth by Boston, Salem, and Newburyport merchants their dealings with pirates and privateers like Captain Kidd, Massachusetts merchants' tendency to play both sides of the Revolutionary War, and the story of how a few of these same Massachusetts mercantile dynasties originated the Sino-American trade and cornered the Turkish opium market in Canton. We will endeavor to trace the influence of Massachusetts Masonic orders and the ways in which fraternal secret societies were manipulated by wealthy New Englanders to support the creation of an American aristocracy, how these societies tried to nip the populist democratic impulse in the bud following the revolution affect geopolitical affairs around the world, and ultimately establish the American empire and American global supremacy through strategies like manifest destiny and filibustering campaigns abroad. We will eventually look at synchronicities and connections between multiple assassinations and their relationship to Massachusetts. But before we do, introductions are in order. My nom de pod is Senator Seneter, and in these first few epis, I will be assisting you with this colonoscopy of colonial America as we rummage through the annals of Massachusetts history to explore its dark past. But... Putting poop jokes to the side for the moment, I want to assure you that, although this is yet another parapolitical podcast, I believe you'll come away with your mind boggled and hungry for more. 
If you enjoyed the show and our freewheeling investigations, please like, follow, and review it on whatever podcatcher you're using. And make sure to subscribe on Patreon so that I can find the time to produce the tons of premium content, parapolitical power maps, and synchronous deep dives planned for future episodes. To begin this episode in earnest, I ask that you humor me as we use an imaginative exercise to sketch a psychogeography of Boston and draw some initial connections between history and place. So, try to imagine. We're taking a stroll along the north end of Boston, like one of those fancy French flaneurs or Thomas de Quincey. We cut through the emerald lawns of the Rose Fitzgerald Greenway, pride of the Kennedy clan. Heading west, we cross Summer Tunnel, the I-93 roaring below us, and past JFK Surface Road and a swanky Hilton. We have a destination in mind, but are ambivalent about how we get there. We're drawn up Blackstone Street by the buzzing queues around the cut-price fruit stalls of Haymarket. Our wandering has a singular purpose, a psychogeographic sketch of the Freedom Trail and some of the most haunted locales of Boston. An initial foray into a larger parapolitical exploration of Massachusetts' prominent and consequential role in the cursed history of these United States. Feeling the cobbles beneath our feet and the colonial facades around us, we realize we're in one of Boston's most visited tourist traps and historic districts. Walking down Salt Lane, we catch ourselves peering through the windows of the Green Dragon Tavern and into its pub, thronged with tourists. And we remember that the Green Dragon was where the Boston Tea Party was plotted, and that the tavern had been purchased by the Free Masonic St. Andrew's Lodge to house the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts ancient free and accepted masons in 1764. Famously, on the night of the tea party, only the loyalist members of the lodge showed up to one of their meetings, leaving a paper trail in protest. Historical accounts claim the tavern sign featured a square and compass, which hung above the front door. The 
The tavern's namesake was a copper dragon that had turned green from patina. The tavern operated on the ground floor, while the second floor was the St. Andrew's Lodge slash Grand Lodge of Massachusetts. Evidently, the Green Dragon was the largest meeting space in the North End at the time. Historians have called it the headquarters of the American Revolution. It was also the de facto HQ of the Sons of Liberty, and was where they would meet in secret, as did the Boston Committee of Correspondence. The North End Caucus rallied the guard that would keep watch over the tea ship called the Dartmouth and prevent its cargo from being unloaded at the Green Dragon Tavern. Brother Edward Proctor, a Salem witchcraft trial descendant, and St. Andrew's Lodge Freemason led this guard. Another notable Freemason named Paul Revere also served. A little later, Revere would join the Selectmen, another secretive fraternal guard, who patrolled the streets of Boston two by two and spied on the movements of British troops. This was before his famous midnight ride to Lexington. Each member initiated into the Selectmen took an oath of secrecy over a Bible. Regarding the Boston Tea Party, and the Sons of Liberty's motivations. It's necessary to clear up some commonly held misconceptions. For one, the Boston Tea Party and the larger protest movement that birthed it were not fueled by everyday frustrations over the excessive taxing of British tea in the colonies. On the contrary, it had more to do with the Crown and Parliament undercutting American tea smugglers and importers so as to prop up the East India Company, who were in financial straits due to famine in Bengal. This is what so incensed the leaders of the bourgeois Sons of Liberty. If anything, Colonial consumers were benefiting from the suddenly cheaper British tea prices. As the EIC was desperate to move the huge surplus of tea in their warehouses, the colonial merchants were enraged to have their profitable Dutch tea smuggling enterprises dealt such a blow. A materialist analysis of the Boston Tea Party and the events leading up to the American War of Independence could argue that the political overtones and posturing of the protest movement were a convenient fabrication manufactured in the service of an American aristocracy seeking to consolidate their power and profits. When one examines the outcomes of the Revolutionary War for the working-class citizens of the colonies, it becomes apparent that the end goal was not the emancipation and political enfranchisement of everyone, but instead the transfer of power from the English monarchy to a new capitalist ruling elite. 
Dr. Joseph Warren, a slightly lesser-known founding father, but still highly influential in the early days of the Patriot Movement, was the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts at the time of the Boston Tea Party. He was also the first. Brother Paul Revere was the senior Grand Deacon. Both the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts and St. Andrews before it received their charters through the Grand Lodge of Scotland. The Lodge's upstart Scottish lineage meant that the older British Lodges held them at arm's length, seemingly hinting that the other Lodges may have been more of the Loyalist persuasion. According to one account I found, Joseph Warren and Paul Revere were good buddies, in case you care. In fact, it was Joseph Warren who sent Paul Revere to Lexington with a coded message for brother John Hancock, who, if you can believe it, was also a St. Andrew's Lodge member. Sadly, Warren would later die at the Battle of Bunker Hill leaving the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts bereft and without a Grand Master. In the 1790s, Paul Revere would fill his shoes, leading the merger of the ancient and modern Grand Lodges of Massachusetts, and ultimately becoming Grand Master himself. A random North End caucus meeting in the Green Dragon might have involved the singing of the Rally Mohawk song, the title of which name-checks the gang responsible for the Boston Tea Party. How fitting that the Sons of Liberty and Masons involved in the Boston Tea Party would choose the name Mohawks for their gang. This decision was inspired by one of the more infamous Hellfire Clubs of the early 1700s. A fraternal club of rakes who met for debauchery and to terrorize townspeople for sport in London. The name is also incredibly racist. According to Jonathan Swift, writing at the height of the Mohawk Panic in London, the Mohawks were a group of rakes that, quote, play the devil about town every night, slit people's noses, and beat them, end quote. An account from a Lady Strafford describes how the Mohawks, quote, put an old woman into a hogshead and rolled her down a hill. They cut off some noses, others' hands, and several barbarous tricks without provocation. They are said to be young gentlemen. Although there seemingly aren't accounts of the American Mohawks waging terror against everyday people, they appear to share a bourgeois revolutionary lineage with the Mohawks from 1712. Swift believed the London Mohawks were Whig-affiliated and part of a larger parliamentary opposition plot that involved a letter bomb sent to the Lord Treasurer. 
other newspapers claimed they were Jacobite Tories. One thing that is certain is that the London Mohawk's devotion to debauchery draws an indisputable connection between them and the fraternal revolutionary underground in Boston in the late 1700s. Here are the lyrics to a song sung by the American Variety, who modeled themselves after other rakish hellfire clubs. Rally, Mohawks, bring out your axes, and tell King George will pay no taxes on his foreign tea. His threats are vain, and vain to think, to force our girls and wives to drink his vile bohea. Then rally, boys, and hasten on to meet our chiefs at the Green Dragon. Our warrens there, and bold revere, with hands to do and words to cheer, for liberty and laws, our country's braves and firm defenders, shall ne'er be left by true Northenders, fighting freedom's cause. Then rally, boys, and hasten on, to meet our chiefs at the Green Dragon. The American Mohawks used lamp oil and paint to disguise themselves in blackface. On the night of the Boston Tea Party, many of them met at the Green Dragon Tavern prior to heading for the shipyard. So as you can see, the Green Dragon Tavern is a suitable starting point for our psychogeography and its revolutionary-era Masonic and Hellfire Club associations teasingly hint at what's yet to come. Wolfgang Amadeus is born. 1761, at the age of five, Amadeus begins composing. 1773, he writes his first piano concerto. 1782, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart marries Constance Weber. 1784, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart becomes a Freemason. 1791, Mozart composes the magic flute. Fifth of that same year, Mozart dies. 
1985, Austrian rock singer Falco records. Walking on, we round the corner and reach the Union Oyster House and its wood-paneled walls. The Union Oyster House is the longest continuously running restaurant in the United States and has the accompanying sus history to prove it. Looking back the way we came, we realize that the Union Oyster House appears to be a part of the same complex of buildings that hold the Green Dragon and that it is in fact right behind it. We marvel at this surprising proximity, until we remember that it was once home to Isaiah Thomas's Massachusetts spy, an anti-British tabloid. But not only that, Louis-Philippe I, future King of France and Prince of the Blood of the House of Bourbon, would live above the Union Oyster House while exiled from France during the Reign of Terror. Although he would have certainly faced the guillotine in his home country for his unapologetic monarchism, the Freemasonic founding fathers and leaders of the American Revolution were more than happy to host and meet with the French princeling during his sojourn in the young United States. While in the United States, Louis-Philippe spent time in the company of George Clinton, John Jay, Alexander Hamilton, and George Washington. Considering the fact that Louis-Philippe I once lived above it, and its close proximity to one of the oldest Freemasonic lodges in the United States, can we really be surprised that the Union Oyster House has been a mainstay for the American political elite for generations? It has remained a fixture from Daniel Webster, who, legend has it, would eat six plates of oysters and a tumbler of brandy there on the daily. Which, I mean, talk about a classic political elite appetite. All the way to JFK, who has a booth dedicated to him. Leaving the Union Oyster House, we pass through the somber fog of the New England Holocaust Memorial's open-air gas chambers, and cross North Street, flipping off Faneuil Hall to our left. 
which is high on our shit list for being named after a slave trader, of course. We pass the Samuel Adams statue, another good Freemason and backstabbing infiltrator of working-class fraternal societies, and head south towards the old state house. We turn west past the Boston Massacre site, and follow the Freedom Trail down Washington Street. Hanging a right at the corner of school in Washington, we stop to examine the long brick building that now holds a Chipotle and Brugger's Bagels. This is the old corner bookstore, the oldest commercial building in downtown Boston. But the property's history stretches even further back, as it was once the location of Anne Hutchinson's home. The legendary antinomian who flouted the puritanical conventions of 17th century Boston by leading scripture readings in her home. Women were strictly forbidden from preaching in colonial Puritan society. According to the Freedom Trail website, as many as 80 people would attend her meetings, which was approximately one-tenth of the population of Boston at the time. So it's unsurprising that the soaring popularity of her heterodox teachings would result in the colony's authorities taking action, which they did, charging her with heresy, excommunicating her, and exiling Anne to Rhode Island. But Anne was uncowed. She went on to found the town of Portsmouth, but was tragically slaughtered with her children in New Netherlands in 1643. Hutchinson's property would later fall into the hands of a Dr. Thomas Creese, who, continuing the location's tradition of religious heterodoxy, built and opened an apothecary shop there in 1718. The very same building that Chipotle is now slinging E. coli burritos out of. Only a few decades on from the Salem crisis, practitioners of folk magic would have purchased herbs for various white magic remedies from Dr. Kreese's apothecary shop, and perhaps even magical almanacs and other taboo items. Before becoming a chain burrito joint, the old corner bookstore would pass through one last manifestation, which was its namesake. In the 19th century, it housed a number of booksellers and publishers, the most famous of which was Tickner and Fields, who printed a veritable who's who of famous American authors. Thoreau's Walden, Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, Alcott's Little Women, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, and that most excellent of rags, the Atlantic Monthly. At least excellent for So, the aforementioned Hawthorne Stowe. 
Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and many others were first published by Old Corner Bookstore Publishers, as were the very first American editions of Charles Dickens' works. Make a mental note of these authors and their relationship to the Old Corner Bookstore. As the building's close proximity to our next few stops will draw many uncanny synchronicities between them and other topics of interest, like the Salem witchcraft trials. Just as it will make plain the incredible amount of parapolitical power that has been wielded by the historical persons who have frequented this mere square block of Boston. Nathaniel Hawthorne, for instance, would add a W to his name so as to distance himself from his ancestor, Judge Hawthorne, of the court of Oyer and Terminer and Salem witchcraft infamy. Hawthorne would find inspiration for the Scarlet Letter from a headstone in the cemetery right up the street. A cemetery that holds the bodies of a Salem witchcraft justice. The merchant, Thomas Brattle, who was one of the most vocal critics of the trials at the time. And one of the wealthier women accused of witchcraft, although never tried. Margaret Thatcher. And Natty Boy would spend much of his life obsessed with the trials, his family's questionable role, New England witchcraft and paganism. But let's not get too sidetracked, as we have further ground to cover in this introductory psychogeographic sketch before we dive too deep into the thick of things. Call me up some rainy afternoon I'll arrange for a quiet little spoon Think of all the joy and bliss We can hug and we can Talk about the weather We can have a quiet little talk I'll see that your mother takes a walk Mom's the word when we meet be a mason, don't repeat. Angel eyes, are you wise? Goodbye. Continuing west on school, against the flow of traffic. We pass the old city hall and the Benjamin Franklin statue in its sparrow-filled courtyard. Yet another Freemason and prospective Hellfire Club member. Enclosed by a wrought iron fence and stout pillars, its triumphant aesthetic is only marred by the garish plaque nailed to one of the pillars, advertising Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, the confusingly named restaurant that has infested the building 
in the absence of its former civic purpose. Unfortunately, a startup also calls it home. A few steps west of the old state house, we reach the nexus of our psychogeography, a square block of such parapolitical import that it boggles the mind. On the left-hand side of School Street, there's the gleaming facade of the Omni Parker House. Green awnings hanging over the windows on the third and fourth stories. The glittering marquee, the golden trim, and the velvet carpets. On its opposite, the blackening, rough-hewn granite of King's Chapel could not provide a stronger contrast. These two make a neat allegory for two of the primary phases of American history. From this country's hard and oft-mythologized colonial roots to the gaudy, capitalist decadence that has replaced it. The King's Chapel and its burying ground bring smallpox, the genocide of indigenous Americans, King Philip's War, the Salem Witchcraft Trials, privateering and smuggling, plus Captain Kidd, and the battle between the Puritan and Anglican strains of colonial society for supremacy to our psychogeography and local history. Whereas the Omni Parker House is like the karmic byproduct of those early colonial injustices and the new secular society born of the revolution writ large. The Parker House brings us the self-made millionaire myth of the American dream. John Wilkes and Edwin Booth, the Transcendentalists, Abraham Lincoln and his assassination, Ulysses Grant, Charles Dickens, Mayor Curley, Ho Chi Minh, John F. Kennedy, Malcolm X, and even Stephen King into our psychogeographic local history. And you'll notice the uncanny amount of assassinations, presidential and otherwise, that intersect with its history. So I doubt you'll be surprised when I tell you that the Parker House is widely reported to be haunted. We're talking the longest continuously running hotel in the United States, and with a sordid history that spiderwebs numerous assassinations over the past 170 years. Not to mention the fact that it's sandwiched between two of the oldest colonial-era cemeteries in the United States. Remember how, at the beginning of our psychogeography, we were discussing the Green Dragon Tavern and the Masonic friendship between Paul Revere and Joseph Warren? Well, wouldn't you know it, Paul Revere is buried mere yards away from the Parker House in the Granary Burying Ground. Here's an excerpt from a history of the Parker House that was published in 1929 that details its proximity to the granary burying ground 
and the cemetery's historical significance. The Granary Burying Ground is situated on Tremont Street, just a few steps away from the Tremont Street entrance of the Parker House. It was established in 1660 and was known in colonial times as the South Burying Ground. It was soon shut off from the rest of the common, as we have seen, by the erection of a row of public buildings along the present line of Park Street. The Almshouse and House of Correction, or in other words, the Bridewell'er Jail, to which the granary afterwards was added. Here lie the bodies of Edward Rawson, Secretary of the Colony for 36 years, John Hull, the celebrated mint master, and his son-in-law, Chief Justice Samuel Sewell. The Patriots, John Hancock and Samuel Adams. Besides many of the earlier governors of Massachusetts, Jonathan Phillips, the first mayor of Boston, and Paul Revere. The Franklin Monument is in this burial ground. 266 revolutionary soldiers are buried here, and 17 members of the Boston Tea Party. As the previous excerpt demonstrates, the ground around the Parker House is literally littered with the bodies of many prominent Revolutionary-era Freemasons. The Parker's close proximity to these historic cemeteries also connects it to some of the darkest and most violent incidents in this country's past. Take Judge Samuel Sewell, for example, whose remains are interred in the Granary Burying Ground. Samuel Sewell was a part of the court of Oyer and Terminer, which oversaw the judicial proceedings during the Salem Witchcraft Crisis, and he played a large role in the executions of numerous people falsely accused of witchcraft. Now, don't misunderstand me. Not everyone brought before the court of Oyer and Terminer was falsely accused, as we'll discover in a subsequent episode. It appears that the Parker's funereal and spooky surroundings have always been a part of its attraction, as the 1929 history, Boston and the Parker House, describes how early clients would stay at the Parker to visit the graves of the many famous American figures buried nearby. Let's read a few sentences from Ghosts of Boston, Haunts of the Hub, and examine a few of the Parker House's alleged hauntings. An inexplicable supernatural energy emanates from the oldest continuously run hotel in the country, the Omni Parker House. Originally built in October 1855, the Parker House boasts a slew of ghostly reports, ranging from Harvey Parker himself, who passed away on May 31, 1884, at the age of 79, and apparently continues to roam the halls of the hotel he built, to mysterious orbs floating down the tenth-floor corridor, and a malevolent male spirit with a disturbing laugh, who reportedly lingers in the now-off-limits room 303. 
Now, skipping a couple paragraphs that cover the Parker House's historical significance, because we're going to source our history from elsewhere in just a moment. However, the Omni Parker House's reputation as Boston's most haunted sometimes surpasses its historical significance. I first heard about the ghost of Harvey Parker when I began working here in 1941, explained longtime bellman John Brem in an interview with the Boston Globe in 1992. One guest, an elderly woman staying in room 1078, said she saw an apparition of a man outside her room during her stay in the 1950s. At first, it was a misty apparition in the air. Then it turned toward her, Brem explained. She said it was a heavy-set older man with a black mustache. He just looked at her, then faded away. She came downstairs a bit jittery, and security went up to the tenth floor. They checked it out, but reported they could find nothing. While the building's revolving doors greeted presidents, celebrities, and ghosts for more than 150 years, the corner of Tremont and School Streets has been a source of darkness for three centuries. The psychic imprint of the horror known as the Boston Massacre may have caused what parapsychologists call an aura of disaster. Fertile ground for the birthing of ghosts, wrote Holly Nadler in Ghosts of Boston Town. In 1704, before the nearby massacre that rocked the city on March 5, 1770, five kids sledding down the street next to the former site of the Boston Latin School were killed by redcoats after causing a ruckus with the British constabulary and heaving rocks at authorities. Other haunted happenings involved elevators mysteriously being called to the third floor, once frequented by both Charles Dickens and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. The hotel's ornate lifts are known to mysteriously stop on the floor without anyone pushing a button. There's also the story of Room 303, which in 1949 was the scene of a rumored suicide of a liquor salesman who killed himself with barbiturates and whiskey. More than 20 hotel employees have reported walking into the room and seeing the specter of a naked man lying on the floor, reported the Boston Globe in 1999. The image faded, but the scent of whiskey hung in the air. According to lore, the room, which is now a storage closet, is said to have inspired horror legend Stephen King when he wrote the short story turned film, 1408. Okay, so just to paraphrase a couple other paragraphs, Haunts of the Hub describes how there have been numerous accounts of lights mysteriously turning on and off, uh, doors opening and closing themselves, employees uh, fleeing the hotel after having a close encounter with apparitions. Another quote from uh, Holly Nadler. Longtime staffer Ed Cotto has heard reports of large nebulous white lights on the ninth and 10th floors, 
and on other occasions, he says hotel workers have noted unexplained thumps and grinding noises. Probably the funniest and least believable story in here is one told by a bartender from the Parker House bar who describes how a patron tried to leave the building (laughs) without paying and the doormat literally like flew up and blocked the exit. I don't buy that for one second. The author, Sam Baltrusis, makes one mistake here, um, erroneously claiming that John F. Kennedy announced his candidacy for president in the Parker House. This isn't true. My understanding is JFK announced his candidacy for uh, the House of Representatives, but um, never for president. But evidently in in the press room uh, stands an enchanted mirror, which used to be in Charles Dickens' room. According to ghost tour legend Jim McCabe, Charles Dickens would practice his orations in the mirror. All right, well, now that we've established the Parker House's spookiness without a shadow of a doubt, let's speed through Omni Parker House, a brief history, an article that I stumbled across on the Internet Archive. To establish some of the hotel's most pertinent facts and associations, before we move on to our final points of interest. The history is a capture of a page on the Omni Hotel's website from October 2012. Preemptive apologies to Susan Wilson, the author of this brief history, as well as Heaven by Hotel Standards, the official Parker House history in book form. Susan, we're going to skip around a bit. Unfortunately, not everything in here warrants our attention. Okay, so, the article begins. Mention the name Omni Parker House, and a century and a half of rich and varied history comes to mind. Founded by Harvey D. Parker in 1855, the Omni Parker House is the oldest of Boston's elegant inns. She talks about how it's the longest continuously operating hotel. We know this. Okay, here we go. It was here where the brightest lights of America's golden age of literature, writers like Emerson, Thoreau, Hawthorne, and Longfellow, regularly met for conversation and conviviality in the legendary 19th century Saturday Club. You remember those names. Ah, but now we can introduce some new folks. It was here where baseball greats like Babe Ruth and Ted Williams wined, dined, and unwound. And then she goes on to talk about the politicians. We've mentioned a few of them. Um, Ulysses S. Grant, James Michael Curley, again. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Okay, so we're also getting some Delanos and some Roosevelts up in the Parker John F. Kennedy, getting closer to the present day, William Jefferson Clinton, assembled for private meetings, press conferences, and (laughs) this last one's my favorite, power breakfast. I've I've never heard of power breakfast before. Just a couple of good old boys coming together over a plate of eggs, 
Benedict to decide the future of the free world. <laughs> it's ridiculous. All right, next paragraph. With its close proximity to Boston's theater district, the Omni Parker House also played an important role for thespians. Many of the 19th century's finest actors made the Parker House a home away from home, including Charlotte Cushman, Sarah Bernhardt, Edwin Booth, and the latter's handsome matinee idol brother, John Wilkes. Another person that I mentioned earlier, and who just happens to be a presidential assassin. During the 20th century, that list expanded to include stars of stage, screen, and television, including Joan Crawford, Judy Garland, Anne Magret, and Marlo Thomas. Okay, so the next paragraph goes way back. We hear a bit about what stood where the Parker House now stands in colonial-era Boston. In 1630, when Englishman John Winthrop and the Puritans of the Massachusetts Bay Colony first settled here, they initially named the peninsula Trimount, after the three hills, Beacon, Pemberton, and Mount Vernon, that dominated the skyline. The young colony's first church, townhouse, Freshwater Spring, ah, and now mentions of prisons again, stock and pillory, were all located within two blocks of where the Parker House stands today. Speaking of proximity, the Parker House is also just a few blocks from the Boston Common, which I don't believe we've mentioned yet, but was in fact the execution theater for the residents of colonial Boston, and the site where numerous executions were carried out during the Salem witchcraft trials, and the accused were hung at Proctor's Ledge. Remember how in the Ghosts of Boston book that we were reading earlier, a parapsychologist named Holly Nadler was talking about aura of disaster. Although I can't seem to find any scholarly references to a quote-unquote aura of disaster theory, I have to admit that I am intrigued by such a concept on a metaphysical and psychological level. There are a few different terms used in comparative religious studies that kind of near the language we're searching for here. Sacralization and the sacralization of place, whereby a place is made sacred. Another would be hierophany or the physical manifestation of the holy or sacred. Of course, neither apply to the Parker House, as it would be the presence of an unholy or profane power in that place, if anything. Kratophany, aka the manifestation of power, might come close. But I believe that phrase is most associated with Mercia Eliade, who was a Nazi sympathizer, so I'm reluctant to use it. I coined my own phrase in an attempt to cohere a theory of the vortex of uncanny energy that seems to surround the Parker House and King's Chapel. And the best I've come up with is karmic sink, 
But names aside, I do think there's something to be said for the idea that violence begets violence, and also that negative energy can collect and seep into the surrounding environment. And I do believe that, while it may not be an infallible law of the universe, there's certainly some truth and evidence of the presence of karma in our lives and throughout history. Perhaps these locations' karmic influence on American history will become clearer as we continue. They say that I'm a witch and that I weave a spell. <laughs> My eyes to invite you, my lips to delight you, and all the charms of the feminine wires to excite you. They say that I'm a witch and that I weave a spell. Well, I'll be a son of a and a wonder. Well, let me tell you, brother, I'd rather be burned as a witch than never be burned at all. I use my songs to entice you, with verses advise you, and all of my bags of tricks to shoes and rhymes. They say that I'm a witch and that I weave a spell Well, I'll be a son of a and no other Well, let me tell you, brother, I'd rather be burned as a witch Than never be burned at all If you want a gal who would be your pal Who would never look at another Who would be good and true and take care of you Sorry, you want another Use my charms to undo you My arms to unglue you And all of the hicks of the weaker sex to voodoo Well, I'll be a son of a Who's a turtle dove who will bring your life's little joys? Who is sweet and shy with a gentle eye? I'll take the men, not the boys. Use my eyes to invite you, my lips to delight you. And you never can tell when I use my teeth to bite you. They say that I'm a witch, that I weave a spell. But I'll be your son of a and a wonder. Well, let me tell you, brother, I'd rather be burned as a section. Wild about Harvey. The concept of hotel is a fairly recent one. Hence, in colonial Boston, travelers found rest and refreshment, not in hotels or but at local taverns and inns. Since women were rarely on the road, colonial males generally frequented these roadside taverns. They slept in rustic shared bedrooms, and often shared beds, after spending considerable time quaffing pints of colonial beer. What happens in rustic shared bedrooms after quaffing pints of colonial beer stays in rustic shared bedrooms. Ain't that right, fellas? <laughs> These taverns were centers for male bonding, conversation, and in periods of unrest or revolution, secret political meetings. Hmm. 
It's almost like secret political meetings are one of the themes of this series. They keep cropping up quite a bit. As these precursors to the modern hotel developed beyond simple tap rooms, they began to be known as houses. A gentler nomenclature for a far gentler environment. During the second quarter of the 19th century, more and more travelers arrived in Boston by coach or ship. Lodging and dining houses proliferated throughout town, many bearing patriotic names, like the American House, the Shawmut, the Adams, and the Revere House. Boston's resident houses became so genteel, and sometimes so luxurious, that even ladies were ably accommodated. That's sexist. WTF, Susan. In the midst of this period of expansion and change, a 20-year-old farm boy named Harvey D. Parker arrived in Boston Harbor on a packet from Maine. The year was 1825, and his dilemma was real. With less than one dollar in his satchel, young Parker was in immediate need of employment. His first job as a caretaker for a horse and cow brought him $8 per month. Subsequent work as a coachman for a wealthy Watertown woman generated somewhat more respectable earnings and set him on a whole new career path. Whenever Parker trotted the horse-drawn coach into Boston... The young man ate his noonday meal at a dark cellar cafe on Court Square, owned by one John E. Hunt. By 1832, the ambitious young Parker bought Hunt's cafe for $432 and renamed it Parker's Restaurant. A combination of excellent food and perfect service immediately began attracting a regular clientele of businessmen, lawyers, and newspapermen. By 1847, he took on a partner, John F. Mills, and by 1854, he was ready to embark on a much grander enterprise. Parker's plan was to build a new first-class hotel and restaurant at the School Street base of Beacon Hill, just down the road from the domed Massachusetts State House. Despite the competition, another popular modern hotel directly across Tremont, Parker bought the former Miko Mansion on April 22, 1854, and raised the decrepit boarding house. In its place, Parker built an ornate, five-story, Italianate-style stone and brick hotel, faced in gleaming white marble. The first and second floors featured gracefully arched windows, while marble steps led from the sidewalk to the marble foyer within. Once inside, thick carpets and fashionable horsehair divans completed an air of sumptuous elegance. Above the front door, an engraved sign read simply, Parker's. So, continuing with this brief history of the Parker House, we next read about how the positive reviews begin pouring in. 
And this next section opens with a poem from the physician poet Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., who evidently would refer to himself by the sobriquet Autocrat of the Breakfast Table, which makes me wonder, was Wendell Holmes the originator of Power Breakfasts? Did he coin the phrase? Don't quote me on that, because I don't actually know. But what I do know is that that is a terrible epithet. What kind of sicko would refer to themselves as the autocrat of the breakfast table? And who would want to eat with them? They'd probably be ordering the butter around, smashing the table with a ham-fisted fork. No thank you. For the sake of time, we're going to skip Wendell Holmes' poem. Alright, next sentence. Uh, Boston's media was also awed by what Parker wrought. A reporter for the Boston Transcript fairly raved about the establishment in an October 1855 review. Quote, This elegant new hotel on School Street was opened on Saturday for the inspection of the public. Several thousands of our citizens, ladies as well as gentlemen, availed themselves of the invitation. And for many hours, the splendid building was literally thronged. All were surprised and delighted at the convenient arrangement of the whole establishment, the gorgeous furniture of the parlors, the extent and beauty of the dining hall, the number and different styles of the lodging rooms, and, in fact, the richness lavish expenditure and excellent taste which abounded in every department. The house was universally judged to be a model one. Visiting British author Charles Dickens marveled at the splendors of Boston's finest new hotel in a letter to his daughter. Quote, This is an immense hotel with all manner of white marble, public passages, and public rooms. I live in a corner, high up, and have a hot and cold bath in the bedroom, connecting with the sitting room, and comfort not in existence when I was here before. The cost of living is enormous, but happily we can afford it. All right, so this next section is on the... Uh, Culinary Exploits of the Parker House Food for Thought Harvey Parker's earlier experience with Parker's restaurant had taught him that catering to the local crowd, providing Bostonians with a fine and flexible dining experience, was equally important to his business as offering visitors architecturally elegant lodgings. Hence, in a day when a good Boston cook could be hired for $8 per week, or $416 a year, Parker hired the gourmet French chef Saint-Zion for an astonishing annual salary of $5,000. Saint-Zion's versatile menu drew large crowds and ongoing accolades. A typical Parker's banquet of the 1850s or 60s might include 
Green turtle soup, ham and champagne sauce. Ass picks of oysters, no, ass pick of oysters. Filet of beef with mushrooms. Mongrel goose, black breast, plover, charlotte russe. Mince pie, and a variety of fruits, nuts, and ice creams. Among Sanzion's specialties were tomato soup, venison chop sauce, and delicate mayonnaise. Man, that food porn came out of nowhere. I swear I'm just reading from Susan Wilson's page here. As fun as it is to do an ASMR-inducing recitation of the Parker House menu, there's a more incisive point to be made. The savory staples and exquisite treats on offer at the Parker House restaurant were undoubtedly a huge aspect of its draw to American high society and the Boston Brahmin class. This is why the Saturday Club the aforementioned fraternal society that included Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., and many other members of the Massachusetts intelligentsia, chose the Parker House restaurant as their clubhouse. The cuisine must have also appealed to the many 19th century stars of the stage who chose to reside in the Parker House like John Wilkes Booth and his brother Edwin, who we alluded to earlier. And if the food was good enough to attract the lights of the literary scene and the celebrities of the day, it doubtlessly attracted the politicians, dignitaries, and rich folk that flocked to the Parker in droves. Remember how the brief history also name-checked Ulysses S. Grant? Get this. One of the super-prominent Massachusetts shipping families we're going to get into a little later on are the Cushings. John Perkins Cushing, a member of the Perkins family, another set of Boston Brahmins through his mother, would live in China for multiple decades running the Canton-based operations of his uncle's Sino-American trade business. And yes, they smuggled opium. Anyways, his cousin, Caleb Cushing, would go on to be one of the earliest American ambassadors in China, would later become attorney general, and would ultimately end his diplomatic career as the ambassador to Spain. He would be succeeded in Spain by one James Russell Lowell, a romantic poet and member of the, you guessed it, Saturday Club of Parker House fame. Another aside, but you might recognize the last name Lowell as James Russell Lowell was the nephew of Francis Cabot Lowell, the Brahmin industrialist that teamed up with an Appleton, another Brahmin fam, to steal the British textile system, 
while supposedly recuperating from an illness there. So yes, Caleb Cushing and James Russell Lowell were both as close to aristocracy as you could be in the young United States. But to return to the Cushing family for a moment, I found a very interesting factoid while skimming through the section on Harvey D. Parker's personal life in Boston and the Parker House, the longer history of the Parker House that we uh, read from earlier. His wife, Julia Ann Parker, whom he married in 1839, survived him. They had two sons born to them, one of whom died at the early age of ten years. The other lived to young manhood, married and was lost at sea at the age of 24 years, during a voyage to Canton, China. But that's not all. Check out this next sentence. The Chinese embassy made its headquarters here during its stay in Boston. Let me repeat that. The Chinese embassy used the Parker House as its headquarters in the United States, at least prior to 1929. Now, in my mind, friends, the two previous facts I've shared have Caleb Cushing's fingerprints all over them. I can't confirm this as... I don't have any real evidence to back up this conjecture, but we know that the Parker House was already a fixture among Boston Brahmins in the 1850s, and that it would have been a known quantity for Caleb Cushing. The Library of Congress has Caleb Cushing's papers, and John Greenleaf Whittier is listed as someone that he corresponded with in the Finding Aid which presumably means that they corresponded fairly extensively. John Greenleaf Whittier was, you guessed it, a member of the Saturday Club. So we know for a fact that Cushing was on a first-name basis with someone that spent considerable time at the Parker House. Even if we can't place him at the Parker House himself quite yet. But to get back to my hunch... My guess is that Cushing had a hand in both Harvey D. Parker's son sailing to Canton and the Chinese embassy setting up shop in the Parker house. In regards to the first claim, Cushing was directly related to the most successful opium smuggling outfit in Massachusetts through his cousin. And John Perkins Cushing, Caleb Cushing's cousin, Wow, that's a bit of a tongue twister. But anyways, uh, John Perkins Cushing got his start through his uncle Thomas Perkins, who had this tendency to apprentice young male relatives and ship them off to the warehouses of Canton. So you can see why it isn't a stretch of the imagination to picture Caleb Cushing filling the young and impressionable son of Harvey Parker with visions of the untold wealth to be made through the opium trade in China. Perhaps I'll uncover a source that will settle the speculation one way or the other by the time we get to the Massachusetts opium episode. Similarly, 
The Chinese embassy moving into the Parker house feels like it has to be more than a coincidence. But even if we can't tie Caleb Cushing to the Parker house yet, this fact still illustrates how the Parker house was seemingly the place to be if you were a member of high society, were looking to succeed in any kind of artistic or business venture, and or were aiming to wield geopolitical power in the 19th century. I want to throw a quote from a new text into the mix. This is from Stephen Sora's Secret Societies of America's Elite. And this is in reference to Caleb Cushing. Quote, President Tyler then appointed him as a commissioner to China. Cushing's family was made wealthy by the opium trade in China. Shortly after the British began a war against China to impose its right to sell the country opium, Caleb Cushing ordered American ships to enter Canton with guns blazing to further humble China. His next act was to push for war against Mexico. Admitting Texas and other states to the Union as quote-unquote slave states helped slavery to continue. New England and the Brahmin families depended on the South's ability to provide cheap cotton. The cotton could then be spun into textiles in New England's mills, of which Lowell was the preeminent force. When support was needed to rally certain southern states against the abolitionist movement, Cushing dispatched other New Englanders to the south. Albert Pike, from Cushing's home base in Newburyport, Massachusetts, was sent to Arkansas, he too would be raised to the 33rd degree in the Scottish Rite, and he played a key role in the formation of the Ku Klux Klan. Another friend, John Quitman of New York, was sent to Mississippi, where he started Scottish Rite Freemasonry and a secessionist movement. After the war against Mexico, Cushing invited his Mexican war generals including Jefferson Davis, to Massachusetts, where he informed them that he wanted Franklin Pierce to be president. Zachary Taylor had been the hero of the Mexican War, but had alienated the Cotton Whigs by opposing the extension of slavery into California. Nevertheless, he was elected. After 16 months in office, Taylor participated in the decidedly Masonic dedication of the obelisk known as the Washington Monument. He allegedly became sick after eating cherries and drinking milk, and died shortly afterward. Again, a war hero who had survived both the travail and the rigors of war was brought down by a simple problem. Cushing still played a strong behind-the-scenes role in the Buchanan White House. And once war became inevitable, he supported Lincoln, at least publicly. That's an interjection from me. Despite the fact that he had planted men in the South to lead the way to secession, Cushing's duplicity was never enough to get him out of government. 
Sora also claims that the Cushings made a fortune through war profiteering, like other Boston Brahmins, such as Samuel Otis and Elbridge Jerry. Although I can't put the parapower mapping stamp of 100% truthfulness on every single one of Sora's claims in the previous excerpt, I can read you some of the names of the people that Caleb Cushing corresponded with over the course of his lifetime, helpfully compiled by the Library of Congress, which seem to lend some weight to Sora's arguments, but you'll have to draw your own conclusions. All right. I'm not going to read the whole list, just the choicest cuts. So Cushing was pen pals with James Buchanan, Edward Everett, one Daniel Webster. Cushing would write to John Tyler. Oh, here's a name we mentioned previously, John Greenleaf Whittier. Cushing wrote to William Henry Seward, who I believe was the Secretary of State for the Lincoln administration, right? Franklin Pierce, Abraham Lincoln. And now for the most curious connections. Caleb Cushing was writing epistles to Jefferson Davis, Albert Pike, and Andrew Johnson. Hmm. Let's return to our brief history of the Parker House and try to wrap it up. Uh, otherwise, this introductory psychogeographic sketch is going to stretch into three episodes, and we can't have that. Two is already too much. All right, continuing with the culinary section. Wilson next talks about how the Parker House kitchens originated the Boston Cream Pie, now the official dessert of the state of Massachusetts or at the very least, uh, perfected and popularized it in the 19th century. Wilson talks about how the Parker House rolls were world famous as well, and were apparently the inspired creation of a German baker named Ward, who was working under Chef John Bonello in 1876. Famed French composer Jacques Offenbach stayed at the Parker House. He would go on to sing about the Parker rules and then ultimately include this Parker House theme in his only grand opera. The Parker House restaurant and bakery staff kept the Parker House rules recipe under lock and key. That is until 1933, when one Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt requested the recipe be forwarded to them in Washington. We get a paragraph about the term scrod, which Parker's claims to have coined. According to Wilson, the exact definition is disputed, but is generally thought to mean either cod or white-fleshed fish that are the youngest, freshest, smallest, or best of the day's catch. We're skipping ahead a little bit. Now we're reading about the Parker House bar here. 
As might be expected, single men were regulars in the barroom, and though all bars attract the occasional rowdy, Parker's hosted a hefty dose of merchants, businessmen, writers, politicians, and philosophers. Harvard students readily found their way across the Charles River, or wandered in from the nearby medical school, inspiring humorist Artemis Ward to note, quote, Harvard University was pleasantly and conveniently situated in the barroom of Parker's in School Street. That last quote from Artemis Ward kind of makes one wonder whether some of the attraction for politicians was the opportunity to fraternize with young Harvard students back in the day. In the next paragraph, we hear about how Harvey Parker initiated the European plan, which separated the charges for food and lodging. How, according to Wilson, before Parker's, American inns and hotels generally lumped room and board together in a single fee, which resulted in rigid dining schedules and uninspired mass-produced meals. Parker's changed all that. Harvey D. Parker was the number one culinary disruptor man. In the following paragraph, we read a long litany of the incredible chefs who have all worked at the Parker House. The main name that I recognize is Emeril Lagasse. What the hell, I'll just read them all. Joseph Rebus, Jasper White, Lydia Shire... Emeril Lagasse, and Paul O'Connell. All right, now here is the paragraph you have been waiting for. It's interesting to note that talent and fame were not restricted to the European and American chefs who graced the Parker House kitchens. Two cultural icons and notable revolutionaries spent time on the Parker House staff. Vietnamese leader Ho Chi Minh served as a baker in the bake shop from 1911 to 1913, and Malcolm Little, remembered as black activist Malcolm X, was a busboy in the early 1940s, during the period of the Pearl Harbor invasion. But wait, there's more. We're going to skip ahead to Harvey's notorious guest here, because it just dovetails with the previous paragraph oh so nicely. One of the theater world guests Harvey Parker rarely discussed was actor Edwin Booth's brother, John Wilkes Booth. Edwin Booth, 1833-1893, to was a world-class tragedian, who made his theatrical debut at the Boston Museum on Tremont Street in 1849. Eight years later, at the age of 23, Edwin headlined at the Boston Theater on Washington Street as Sir Giles Overreach. The victorious performance proved the turning point of his career and officially began his 30-year reign as the American actor of note. Meanwhile, as Edwin was conquering audiences in the Northeast, another brother, Junius Jr., was impressing the Midwest with his acting skills. Younger brother John Wilkes, 
10 years Edwin's Jr., was arguably the least talented actor in this theatrical family. That's not true. Evidently, Wilson hasn't read the amount of shit that I have on the Booth family. But uh, were you to ask the patriarch, Junius Brutus Booth, which of his sons was the least talented of the three who did go on to become actors, he would have definitely said Junius Jr. And I think Edwin and John Wilkes would have both agreed. It's true that John Wilkes was more often typecast as an adventurer or a romantic lead, but he was certainly a more talented actor than his brother Junius Jr. Junius Jr. was relegated to playing stages on the West Coast in, like, mining towns and saloons and shit, whereas Edwin and John Wilkes shared the eastern part of the United States, the areas in which there were actual theaters to perform in, and uh, split it amongst themselves, Edwin taking the north and John Wilkes uh, touring the south. While Edwin came to specialize in difficult dramatic roles like Hamlet, John tended towards fluffier stuff, enamoring female fans with his dashing swordplay, daring leaps, flashing eyes, and impassioned gestures. He was a charming matinee idol, an unabashed ladies' man, and an ardent Confederate sympathizer. Though his primary stages were in the South, John Wilkes played elsewhere as well. In 1864, for example, all three Booth brothers collaborated in a New York production of Julius Caesar, and John played the romantic hero of the Marble Heart at the Boston Museum. During the 1860s, the Booth's stage careers grew as the Civil War ravaged America. Edwin believed in the Union cause, and proudly cast his first vote ever for Abraham Lincoln in the mid-war elections of 1863. Southern-based John Wilkes fervently disagreed. Quote, When I told him I had voted for Lincoln's re-election, he expressed deep regret and declared his belief that Lincoln would be made King of America wrote Edwin in an 1881 letter. This, I believe, drove him beyond the limits of reason. Maybe so. Maybe so. Although there were first-hand accounts that also mistook John Wilkes Booth for Edwin Booth on the day that John Wilkes assassinated Abraham Lincoln and jumped some dozen feet from a box seat onto the stage of the Ford's Theater. Maybe we'll explore the Lincoln assassination in more detail a little later on. On April 5th and 6th, 1865, John Wilkes was registered at the Parker House and was seen eating in its restaurant. It's possible that he went to visit Brother Edwin, who was playing a successful three-week engagement at the 3,000-seat Boston Theater. It was reported in the Boston Evening Transcript of April 15th that he was indeed practicing his aim. A man named Borland saw Booth at Edwards Shooting Gallery near Parker's 
where Booth practiced pistol firing in various difficult ways, such as between his legs, over his shoulder, and under his arms. Eight days after leaving Boston, on April 14, 1865, John Wilkes Booth assassinated President Lincoln at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., We've made it through most of the major reveals of this episode, now that we've covered the John Wilkes Booth-Parker House connection, as well as Malcolm X and Ho Chi Minh's relationship with the Parker House and the time that they spent there. There's one last section in Susan Wilson's brief history of the Parker House that I want to look at. It's titled Party Politics. Boston City Hall was built facing the Parker House School Street entrance in 1865, only a decade after its opening. Since the seat of Massachusetts government was just up the road, on the crest of Beacon Hill, the Parker House was thus directly on the hot line between City Hall and the State House, a fortuitous situation that ensured regular political clientele for more than a century. State and local politicians dined and drank at Parker's, hunkering down daily for pleasure, politicking, or clandestine tete-a-tetes. Moreover, the Parker House attracted polls of national stature as well. Every U.S. chief of state, from Ulysses S. Grant through William J. Clinton, has passed through the hotel's portals, stayed in its suites, lobbied in its press room, imbibed in its bars, or dined in its restaurants. The 20th century president most closely associated with Massachusetts, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, had an earlier start than most at the Parker House. Legendary politician Clement Norton often recalled the day in 1923 when former Boston mayor John Honeyfitz Fitzgerald was being celebrated with a Parker House party. Quote, I saw this little boy sitting outside the hall, and I said to him, Who are you waiting for, kid? The boy, the six-year-old JFK, responded simply, Grandpa. Norton reportedly took the youngster inside, then coached him to point at the former mayor and say, Quote, this is the best grandfather a child ever had. Other versions of the story have James Michael Curley lifting the boy on the table and urging him to speak. Whatever the impetus, the crowd loved the boy's words, heralded as Jack Kennedy's first public speech. 23 years later, Kennedy announced his candidacy for the U.S. Congress from the same site. By that time, he was a World War II hero, dubious, whose valiant rescues on PT-109, very dubious, were regularly recounted to the charmed voting public. Despite rumors to the contrary, Kennedy did not declare his candidacy for the U.S. presidency at the Parker House in 1960. He did, however, hold his bachelor party in the press room half a dozen years earlier. 
That evening, JFK's friends presented him with an oil painting of the July 1953 cover of Life magazine, depicting Jack sailing near Hyannis with fiance Jacqueline Bouvier. Can you imagine how wild a uh, Kennedy bachelor party in the Parker house must have been back in the 1950s? I, I can't. Probably want to stay away from one of those. The most colorful of all of the Parker House's regular political patrons was surely James Michael Curley, the charismatic Irish-American mayor of the poor who dominated Boston politics for the first half of the 20th century. A mover, shaker, and spellbinding speaker, Curley became a cultural hero to underdogs in general and to Boston's Irish in particular. While alternately serving as a common counselor, alderman, state representative, congressman, Massachusetts governor, four-time Boston mayor, and two-time federal prison inmate. The roguish politician was also an inside dealer who frequently alienated old-time Yankee Brahmins and almost bankrupted the city of Boston with his welfare and city improvement programs. I don't know much about James Michael Curley. I do know that he was corrupt AF, but uh, based on that last sentence, he doesn't sound half bad to me. I mean, if you're putting money in welfare and you're pissing off old-time Yankee Brahmins, you're at least doing something right. Curley held court at daily luncheons in Parker's main dining room delighting curious onlookers and impressing the waitstaff by tipping silver dollars. As a result of his endless politicking, valiant efforts, and dubious escapades, James Michael Curley became the stuff of legend. We're nearing the finish line here. A final footnote or two for our brief history of the Omni Parker House. Some of the more recent visits by high-profile politicians have been joyous events like Bill Clinton's successful fundraiser of 1991. Others have signaled sadder times. Massachusetts governor and Democratic presidential candidate Michael Dukakis, for example, announced the end of his political career at the Parker House. And Senator Paul Songus dropped out of the presidential race here, both in the early 1990s. An interesting footnote to presidential politics at Parker's involves America's two best-known chiefs of state, who, though they never set foot in the Parker House, surely trod on the ground where it stands today. George Washington attended services at King's Chapel, directly across the street, but his visit came 80 years before the hotel was built. Though Abraham Lincoln lectured at Tremont Temple, just around the corner, his Boston sojourn predated Parker's construction by several years. However, his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, did stay here during a visit to Boston in 1862. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, or even if you haven't but are feeling generous, make sure to hit that like and follow. And please, leave a review on whatever podcatcher you may be using, so that other unsuspecting listeners might discover 
the uncanny weirdness that is the Omni Parker House, as well as future installments of this secret history of Massachusetts and colonial New England. Lastly, please consider subscribing to the show's Patreon. Your generous contributions will enable me to continue these investigations and hopefully produce the many episodes to come. Let's conclude the first episode of Para Power Mapping with a quick review of the topics we've explored and the ground we've covered in this first part of our psychogeographic history of Boston. We began by walking through the colonial-era taverns near the North End, noting the Green Dragon Tavern's Freemasonic history, and setting foot into the morass that is the connections between the Freemasons and other fraternal societies, like Britain's Hellfire Clubs, as well as American Founding Fathers' relationships to both. We introduced a few Boston-based Founding Fathers who were hugely influential in the Patriot movement, and also happened to be powerful Freemasons. Specifically, Joseph Warren, Paul Revere, Samuel Adams, John Hancock, and Benjamin Franklin. We briefly discussed the Union Oyster House, the fact that King Louis-Philippe I once lived above it and taught French to young Brahmin society debutantes. I failed to mention this before, but the Union Oyster House is another Boston landmark that is reputed to be haunted. Continuing with our psychogeographic sketch, we passed Faneuil Hall, We'll explore Peter Fanuel's shitty slave-trading ways in more detail in a later episode. And the Boston Massacre site. We briefly highlighted the old corner bookstore's history, its early life hosting antinomian Bible studies, its transformation into an apothecary shop, its renaissance in later life as the home of a few major American publishing houses, and finally, its fall into the hands of a Chipotle and Brugger's Bagels. But the central piece of this first episode was our examination of the Omni Parker House, its incredible history, the persistent accounts of haunting that have followed it, throughout the past 100 years. Its status as the most elite hotel in Boston during the 19th century. And the uncanny way in which numerous assassins and assassinated individuals have spent considerable time within its walls. We speculated about the possibility that Caleb Cushing, a prominent Freemason, statesman, and member of a Massachusetts opium-smuggling dynasty may have influenced the Chinese embassy's decision to use the Parker House as their headquarters for a time, 
And we also provided ample evidence of the Parker House's importance to the Boston Brahmin elite of the 19th century and beyond. We explored the possibility that Boston and Massachusetts are cursed. That, as the spiritual birthplace of the United States and the American Empire, they may contain a seed of the cursed world we now inhabit. In the next episode, which I hope to post imminently, we will cross School Street to visit King's Chapel and the King's Chapel burying ground and explore their spookiness in the shadow of the Parker. We'll travel back in time to the early days of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, an initial foray into a secret history of Western occultism in America. We're going to do Salem. We'll examine the lifetimes of the witch and famous. We'll draw our psychogeographic sketch to a close by visiting at least one more Boston Masonic Lodge and the Boston Common. (laughs) 